Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus on the key takeaways from the recent COP26 conference, among some other notable developments as it relates to workplace equality and inclusion, as well as green transportation. So looking forward to having a wide-ranging conversation today. Uh, joining me for the conversation, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Catherine DeConic-Lopez of Invesco. Just some quick background on Catherine. Catherine is the Global Head of ESG for Invesco, with responsibility for enabling and leading best practices and ESG capabilities across Invesco, including ESG integration, research, voting, and engagement, supporting the distribution team with client engagement, and advising the product teams on ESG innovation. Catherine leads a team of ESG professionals located across EMEA, the U.S., as well as Asia. So, Amantia, Catherine, it's great to be with you both, and thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients on the podcast today. Looking forward to the conversation, and perhaps as a starting point, Catherine, this is very timely. I know you recently attended the COP26 Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. So, Catherine, could you briefly describe the significance of the event, what your experience was, and what are some of the key developments that you witnessed come out of the conference? Absolutely, and you are you are exactly right. I was there on the ground in Glasgow, and and I'm glad I went. Let's put it that way. Uh, obviously, with COVID and the rest of it, uh, tricky to see whether it was actually going ahead. But this year, it did, and I am so glad. I think some of the key things that uh, the conference was hoping to achieve was around securing global net zero by 2050 and keeping us to 1.5 degrees within reach. And that's a very stretch goal. And importantly, this is called the investment cup around mobilizing finance. And again, you know, as an investor, uh, this is really important for us to be seen and represented on the ground in Glasgow, working together to deliver uh, key climate goals. And so in terms of what was actually agreed at Glasgow, 197 countries signed the so-called Glasgow Climate Pact. And that's very significant in terms of particularly strengthening targets. In the uh, Paris Agreement, countries agreed to sign up to what's called nationally determined contributions, NDCs. And what was agreed at Glasgow was really strengthening of those targets and reviewing those targets already by next year, 2022, which is actually earlier than was originally expected. So really speeding up that strengthening of targets. There was also wider partnerships and commitments to grade, such as the Global Methane Pledge, where 100 countries signed a pledge to reduce global methane emissions by 20% by 2030. There was reversing deforestation, one of the areas that I personally think was very material, kind of a key topic that hasn't really seen much limelight previously, but now really, you know, shot right to the top of the agenda where 140 countries committed to actually end and reverse deforestation by 2030. And again, you know, all of this is 2030. That is nine years away. This is very material uh, commitments that have been made. And I would say another key commitment around clean power. So, 
40 countries pledged to phase out coal um, and, and by 2030 and kind of reduce over time uh, coal emissions, as well as on the kind of positive investment side, actually only make zero emission vehicles uh, by 2040 and no later than 2035 in some leading markets. So again, in very material pledges being announced at COP26. And I think from a financial services perspective, really important to have been on the ground and, and being part of that conversation in terms of how finance can contribute to these agreements. From, from that private sector perspective, there was the net zero uh, initiatives announcement around the so-called GFANCE, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, where over 450 firms represented, representing around 130 trillion US dollar in assets, uh, committed to uh, the net zero uh, pledges and including, for example, in asset management, sector, they were around $57 trillion, where Invesco is actually a signatory of that initiative, um, at where we are committing to what's called the Net Zero Asset Manager Initiative. Uh, so these are very material uh, private sector commitments as well. Well, Catherine, very valuable to have heard some boots-on-the-ground perspective from COP26. I know there was a lot to unpack there, so thank you for sharing with us some of the key takeaways. So, Amatia, this is interesting. It ties right into the most recent Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication that you just authored. In part, the publication does cover some of the key developments, takeaways from the conference. So curious to hear about what you picked up on, as well as the substance of some of the commitments that we heard about. I know some are saying that you need to take a cautiously optimistic tone based on what we heard from the conference. Do you agree with that take? Thanks, Ben, and, and it, it's really great to, uh, to speak with you and also to hear Catherine's thoughts as well as her experience from being actually on the ground. So um, that's right. Cautious optimism is is, is one way to, to kind of put our, our views and, and takeaways on, on the conference. And in addition to the uh, Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, we also just published a separate piece Focus on the COP26 takeaways for investors. And our, the title that we chose was, you know, enough progress question mark. And so I won't repeat, uh, all of the highlights of the conference that Catherine just outlined. I think they are almost exactly the areas that we focus on. And, and maybe I'll just underline that an additional, um, thing that we observed happen at COP was the, the kind of establishment and agreement on what's called the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which essentially creates a framework and an opportunity for countries to start trading carbon credits on a bilateral basis, as well as private sector and public sector entities to trade on the multilateral uh, credits that are derived out of projects like reforestation. Um, this is very early on. Um, it's just sort of an agreement, but really what this did was open the door to the possibility of the establishment of a global carbon trading market 
later down the line probably and and sort of another point that I wanted to highlight in addition to what Catherine noted. With this and, and, and all of the other commitments from the public and private sector, we are uh, we see reason to be constructive about the um, the final takeaways and kind of the review of, of how COP26 went in particular after really a half a year of anticipation. Uh, but we're cautious about this optimism. We think these uh, nationally determined contribution plans, what we saw coming into COP was that even though they did become more ambitious, they still mean that the world will fall short of meeting its, its uh, 1.5 degree stretch goal, as Catherine put it. Um, it seems possible, but, but we're still far above that, that target. And what this implies is for us as investors, we have to consider what are investment opportunities to, to, that are driving towards adaptation as the world may continue to, to change as, as climate change sort of um, impact in, in, is potentially enhanced, as well as what are the investment opportunities related to, to this additional um, financing and, and additional focus that continues to be to be put on on this topic. And, and I think um, the, the one one of the main things that COP26 generated was really focusing global attention from all sectors of the economy and all nations on identifying that this. Um, is something that we want to address. And, and I think that focusing off mind, so to speak, creates all of these investment opportunities for the long term. But we certainly will have to keep an eye on implementation as, as that is where the challenges, uh, will, will come. And in some ways, the jury is still out. We'll, we'll continue to have to look at this and, um, and, and see how it develops over months to come. Well, Amantia, thank you for sharing some takeaways from the vantage point that the chief in Investment Office. I do have the publication you cited up in front of me. Again, that's COP26 Takeaways for Investors. Enough progress posed as a question that was authored back on November 22nd. So, of course, for our clients listening in, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy, or you can locate the publication up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though continuing on with this idea of cautious optimism, Catherine, what areas do you think need more focus and warrant more commitments as we move forward from COP26? Well, Amantia rightly mentioned uh, Article 6 and, and creating this uh, global carbon framework for, for carbon trading. But I think as investors, what we're definitely seeing is companies in the absence of global carbon pricing, um, companies setting their own price and, and having to, you know, manage for this future uh, risk in a in, in kind of a um, a pseudo way, let's say. So so putting shadow pricing on carbon uh, that 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 don't exist today in in many markets. And so that I think as investors we would like to see more going forward is is definitely kind of more emphasis and security for companies and uh, to invest in uh, the carbon pricing uh, scenario. So having more security around what that will look like in the future, I think will be helpful for uh, you know strategic investment and decision making by companies and, and, you know, resultingly investors. So I think definitely more work around that particular topic. Um, I would say another area and, and, you know, what I was encouraged about from COP was these kind of more real economy type commitments that I think we haven't necessarily seen in the same 
forest or same scale previously, uh, you know, such as I mentioned the deforestation pledge, such as the, you know, uh, clean um, transportation pledges, etc. And what I'd like to see is issues such as, uh, you know, the shipping industry was an area where we were we were discussing that at the COP26 at the World Climate Summit where I was there. And there were a lot of conversations around, you know, supply chains. How can supply chains be more responsible, lower carbon? How can we speed up working together around, um, you know, lower carbon supply chains and, and, you know, generating that whole life cycle of from consumer demand to the product to the uh, supply chain, including, you know, the distribution network. Um, making all of that a responsible uh, virtual cycle, I think, is something we we need to do more on and, and see more from from individual sectors going forward. So, Amatia, while the conference was mostly focused on climate-related topics, there are many other issues investors should, of course, be aware of as they strive to make meaningful impacts. So could you provide our listeners, our clients, with an update on recent developments in the fight against workplace discrimination and how they relate to possible investment opportunities that could help affect change? Yeah, of course, Dan. And as you say, um, sustainable investing is not just about climate. In fact, it's about taking a holistic view on what are the, the sustainability considerations that, that investors should take in their decisions. And um, in this context of um, labor market tightness of, of uh, upper upward pressure on, on prices and so forth. One of the areas that we looked at was um, what are some of the recent studies that are, are saying around workforce discrimination. Um, and you know, unfortunately, not great updates or news there for me to share. Um, we noted a recent study um, done just a few weeks ago, or published just a few weeks ago by an analytics company based in the UK called Savanta that was reported on by Euroactive, um, noted that for, uh, three in ten black and Asian employees in the UK felt discriminated at work by their employer. Um, and one sort of in addition, interestingly, this and, and connected to this labor issue that we're seeing now, um, the survey found that four in ten black employees had said that they had chosen to leave a job due to lacking workplace diversity and inclusion. Um, and of white employees that they included in the survey, about a quarter responded that they had left a job due to to low levels of diversity in general, which which is uh, interesting and also discouraging to note. Um, and you know, this this was one survey, but also its results are, are directionally consistent with other market research from a variety of organizations and a variety of markets as well. So, a 2019 study from Glassdoor found that 34% of employees in the U.S., the U.K., Germany, and France had experienced or had witnessed of some form of discrimination based not only on race or ethnicity, but also age, gender, or sexual orientation. And so it's, you know, I, I could continue citing data and studies here, but, but really the takeaway and what we're observing is um, that we talk, we've been talking a lot over the last year about how companies being more diverse 
um, may are likely to be more innovative and more profitable. And there's a strong body of research that supports this claim. With this additional lens into workplace discrimination and what these surveys are indicating about employee willingness to leave is that it's not just you know how diverse the company's management or even workforce is that matters, but also what matters is whether companies have in place strong policies around equity and around inclusion to prevent uh, employee attrition, essentially, or, or you know, flipped on its head. As we're looking at this, uh, uh, you know, market of uh, increasing labor tightness, of, of more employees saying that they are willing to uh, look for other opportunities. Um, we believe that companies that do favor strong human capital policies and have better diversity and inclusion properties to them are potentially more likely to come out stronger at the other side of it with either being able to, to better retain their talent or even attract uh, some of the highest quality of the talent in, in, this, in this possible mobility. So running with this a bit further, Catherine, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. In your research, as you work to differentiate between companies on the basis of diversity, equality, and inclusion. What analytical tools, Catherine, do you use and what are some of the challenges that you face? Do you anticipate any developments in this space moving forward? Absolutely. So at Invesco, we have a global research tool, which we call Invesco ESG Intel. It covers more than 10,000 companies globally, and we have built that from a proprietary perspective within Invesco's a global ESG team with input from our various investment team partners. And the tool was built really in recognition that we did need to have a proprietary insight to uh, company behavior on these issues. Uh, there are off-the-shelf solutions, but given we have proprietary views and we want to be dynamic in terms of responding to issues such as diversity, quality, and inclusion, uh, we wanted to create our own solution. And so in that uh, view, we actually do place significant emphasis on uh, diversity and inclusion. And so some of the metrics we look at are gender diversity at the board. That's a very common metric. Equal opportunity policy is slightly less common. Women in management and the gender pay gap. And what we find is uh, that actually the data availability for many of these metrics on individual companies is, is missing. We don't, we, we do go to company data uh, directly, but we also source from third parties um, in terms of, you know, data gathering, et cetera. But if it's not disclosed, it's very hard for us to analyze these issues. And so, um, you know, that is, it does feature in our analysis, it does feature in our evaluation of companies, but I would say to the extent that we do not have the data, it's very hard to, to evaluate. Um, we have a similar approach in terms of our voting policies. So again, voting, we have taken a global position around gender diversity, but on the ethnicity front and race and, you know, other diversity factors, again, data is a, is a challenge there. So we are, while we do have that in our policy, it's part of a wider uh, diversity metrics as opposed to you know, the, the the gender diversity metric, which is which is just easier to measure, so also easier to actually act upon. Um, 
I would say in terms of where we're going next, I'm very encouraged by some of the developments uh, in global standards around disclosure uh, on some of these issues. And I think, you know, having greater global minimum standards for disclosures will make it easier for investors to uh, analyze some of these issues in a more comparable way. And so what we saw was the IFRS, uh, launching the International uh, Sustainability Standards Board, actually at at COP, um, and they will spend 2022 building on existing industry standards and frameworks to create some global minimum disclosure standards, and I think that will be really helpful from an investment perspective. Well, Catherine, thank you for the transparency and for sharing some of your analytical process and for weighing in on what the path forward might look like. Maybe to pivot a bit, another top of mind subject for investors has been transportation electrification and the opportunities this space creates for investors. So, Amati, a couple of points maybe you can weigh in on. Could you outline some updates in this investment space and how investors can take advantage of its growth? And as we review these exciting growth opportunities in the space, maybe outline some of the key risks and areas warranting improvement in this segment of sustainable investing. Thanks, Jen. So it's interesting. I think this this topic of electrification, in some ways, it, it ties out the the two parts of the discussion we, we've had today between COP26 and investment opportunities resulting around climate, as well as these challenges related to to workforce diversity. So, um, and what do I mean by that? I mean, um, as as we've been talking about for for a long time now, we see longer term investment opportunities related to the area of green technology and. One of the subsets of, of green tech are electrification and batteries, which we also have noted as an investment area where we see strong opportunities, um, not just for the year ahead, as we noted in our year ahead publication, but really for the decade ahead. Um, one data point uh, here, and, I, and we could give many, is that um, to support this investment view is that by 2025, we estimate that around 25% of new cars globally could be electrified, starting from a relatively low basis now, which, which again points to this growth opportunity. However, as we're thinking about electrification, which uh, we expect to continue to mainstream, we also um, would recommend investors to, to consider both angles into this. One, to consider it as a thematic growth opportunity, but also for sustainability-focused investors to also be mindful of what are the sustainability challenges or, or related risks on this area. So one potential thing to, to think about is that um, electric vehicles require a significant amount of, of input and materials, which may not necessarily be completely, quote-unquote, green, you know, um, by, by definition. So, for example, mining for materials like lithium or like copper, which are critical in this development, may come with, with a number of risks related to both kind of environmental damage as well as potential uh, human rights or, or labor considerations uh, that are buried deep in, in supply chains. Um, and so in some ways, this and the, the, the human rights angle into thinking about uh, the underlying components of electrification is, is what ties it to the importance of thinking about things like workforce diversity um, and, and human and human capital management policies that, that really are cross-cutting across industries and sectors. Um, 
these are even more challenging as issues for for us to to be able to identify um, because they are often you know multiple tiers in the supply chains of the companies that that in, that ultimately are sort of producing electric vehicles, but also sometimes they're closer in the supply chains of those material companies that are also relevant to this investment thesis. And so the challenges that Catherine was just talking about in terms of investor data that we have access to those all definitely still apply. Yet where we see opportunities, at least in the shorter to medium term for, for investors who are interested in thinking about this holistically, is to look towards ESG engagement type strategies. So those would be the strategies that you know are, are still investing in these kinds of names, are still considering the strong fundamental longer term drivers, but also are working with these companies to engage with them over time to, to firstly become more transparent on some of these um, risks and then second and importantly, start to take mitigating action to reduce um, any challenges that, that, that could happen later down the line. So, you know, the headline there is an opportunity exists through electric vehicle supply chains, but the challenges remain and, and there are sustainability considerations to be mindful of. Well, Amantia, thank you for hitting on those actionable considerations and for flagging some notable risks when it comes to participation I do want to thank Amantia Muhadini as well as Catherine DeConic-Lopez for joining us, spending some time with their advisors, our clients, and for sharing all of the insights that you did. Uh, thank you, Amantia. Thank you, Catherine. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And again today, we've been joined by Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Catherine DeConic-Lopez, Global Head of ESG for Invesco. As a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office authors a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Including the publications which we have been making reference to during our conversation today, uh, the most recent Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, as well as the Sustainable Investing publication COP26 Takeaways for Investors, Enough Progress. So for clients of UBS, please be sure to contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or if you would like to receive a copy of these publications directly. Sustainable Investing Perspectives is part of the UBS Conversations podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new UBS Trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.